for some reason, uh, people enjoy watching shows where other people fail rather than succeed. They enjoy watching people fall like dominoes in a kitchen, and this is the opposite to the way real kitchens work. Welcome to Our Food Journey, a podcast by Hormel Foods. I'm Ethan Waters. Each episode, we speak with people making a difference in our food system. If you want to get a sense of modern food trends, visiting the Culinary Institute of America is a great place to start. Students at the CIA learn more than just how to make a great meal and run a professional kitchen. They study the big picture as well, issues like sustainability, health, and food equity. It's not an overstatement to say that the CIA trains the future leaders in our food system. Today I'll be speaking with Adam Busby, a certified master chef and the general manager of the Napa Valley campus of the CIA. After nearly 30 years in the food business, he's devoted himself to training the next generation of chefs and food entrepreneurs. He knows that the young chefs he's training will, as a group, face many difficult challenges during their careers, but he's encouraged by their spirit of innovation and their understanding that a healthy food system is critical to a happy and productive society. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Adam Busby. Adam, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So I've been learning that every chef has their own sort of unique pathway through their career. They're really diverse in terms of travel and education. Indeed. Tell us a little bit about how you got to where you are. Hmm. Uh, I grew up in a food family, surrounded by great food uh, all the time. We, we, uh, we cherished the time we spent together, uh, eating together. And uh, my parents, at a pretty young age, they started taking me to, uh, to nice restaurants. My, both my parents really liked good restaurants. So we would, uh, growing out, we would go out often, and I was just exposed to a lot of food, a lot of good food at a young age. And uh, I took a... <laughs> I took a, I guess it was um, serendipitous, but I took a summer job in a restaurant at college um, doing dishes, and um, as many college students do. And the line cook was out one night sick. It was kind of a last-minute thing. And the chef turned to me and said, you can do this. I need you to come do this. So uh, long story short, um, I got thrown on this line of this really busy steakhouse for a night. And uh, at the end of the night, he's like, you have to go to cooking school. You're like a natural. I said, oh, well, really? You know, I'm, I'm in university. I'm studying math. And, you know, he's like, no, no, no. You're good with your hands. You got you to gotta cook. So anyway, long story short, uh, ended up uh, going to cooking school for a couple of years and then working in a, a small French restaurant, fine dining. And I thought I, thought I kind of knew what I was doing. So I sold everything and uh, bought a one-way ticket, moved to France. Had uh, two chef coats, my chef's knives, and a Michelin guide. I bought a URL pass, and I traveled around France visiting two and three Michelin star restaurants until I found a job, uh, which was no easy feat. Uh, took uh, took a couple months to do that, um, but when I did, uh, it uh, it really paid off. And I spent a couple of years in in France learning from some of the great chefs of the day. That was back in the late '80s, early '90s. Yeah, so that's that's how I got my start, really. So go back to your food family. They they took you to fine restaurants. What was the food served in your house? Was your was your were your parents good cooks as well? And what what was the cuisine that they would? Yeah. So I mean, uh, two fairly diametrically opposed cuisines: British and Danish. <laughs> the uh, Brits aren't known for their food. Uh, the Danes, however, well, uh, Danish food's pretty hot these days. But uh, uh, when I was growing up, you know, it was just really honest food. You know, um, uh, a lot of fish, 
a lot of cured fish, uh, things that my mom would make herself, um, pickles. Um, my mom grew up in the war, so she knew how to make the most of everything and use everything. Uh, so um, uh, as a result, the food was uh, wholesome, it was honest, it was cooked with love, and it was enjoyed uh, you know, by, by everybody. It was, it was, I don't remember a bad meal, really. For someone that grew up in the war, in a time of uh, rationing or in time of where things weren't available, they have a, it shapes your palate. It shapes your desire to make the most of food. A lot of this generation has grown up in America. We have access to an enormous amount of calories. It, it's a different thing. I wonder if we've lost something. Oh, it's a different metric for sure. I'll never forget my mother telling me, you know, if we had, and she grew up on a farm. We'd roast the chicken, we'd eat the chicken, and then uh, we'd pick any meat left over the next day for salad. And then the third day it would be soup. The fourth day we'd dry the bones in the oven, and the fifth day we'd burn the bones for fuel. I mean, 100% utilization. <laughs> right. But hopefully, you know, those influences have not been forgotten. We're going back to a time when food waste seems to be an important, at least, conversation. Do you see trends in, in, in actual ways we're thinking about food and using food that might change the metric on terms of the uh, food waste in America? There's a push towards um, uh, plant-forward dining and people sort of maybe reimagining their plate. Um, it's going to change things a little bit uh, in the coming uh, couple decades. Um, and that's, you know, there's a lot of drivers behind that, uh, the main one being health and wellness. Um, and, you know, people are starting to realize that, hey, you know, i got to do something about this if I want to be around for a while and if I want to have a decent quality of life. So at, at the CIA, uh, for example, we've put a lot of time and energy into, um, you know, uh, learning from the clinicians and talking and, and looking at um, solid scientific data and interpreting that into, you know, what are the next food trends and how's that going to shape the American diner. And, uh, and Plant Forward, is, is, that's the big one right now. And also a sort of corollary to that, the functional foods, the idea that you're eating, and certainly this has changed the drink industry remarkably, like this idea that you're drinking things for a specific function. It's for brain health or gut health or alertness. That certainly, in the last 10 years, you see that in the beverage industry hugely. Is that going to just roll over into the food industry? Is it going to go into other meals as well? Or are we going to be eating for specific functions or health forward only? Yeah. yeah. Uh, I think it's a bit of both, for sure. I mean, there's always going to be that industry uh, that caters to people that believe by, you know, consuming one thing or another, that's going to play into their, their health and wellness. Uh, take, you know, vitamins, for example, supplements, huge, huge industries, as we all know. Um, but then when it comes down to food on the plate, the big challenge is the, the value proposition in America, that we see a plate of food as a protein surrounded by a bunch of stuff. And when we go into a restaurant, we expect that protein to be there and, and to be in the size that we recognize, which is usually about eight ounces. It's too much. Uh, we know that. So, you know, if, if the food industry is going to shift, it usually shifts by and large by the big players. So how do you get some of those big players, those big uh, chain companies to shift to a sort of more plant-forward plate, but still come across with the value proposition to the customer that they're still getting bang for the buck, that's, that's the big challenge, right? So how, how do you do that? And that's, I think, what a lot of operators are grappling with right now. 
What's the, what's the average age of a student at the Culinary Institute of America? Uh, about 20 years old. 20 years old. So, that's, so you've got a young generation. I'm curious whether you see in terms of their interests in what they want to do with their career. I mean, I'm sure some of them classically want, want to be a great chef at a well-known restaurant, but are there other trends or, or, or interests or ways they're thinking about their careers that is maybe different than five years ago or 10 years ago? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, getting a, a culinary education or a baking pastry education really uh, has, uh, it's the keys that unlock a whole bunch of doors uh, these days. Uh, maybe those opportunities used to exist, but I think now more than ever, people are pursuing them. So if you were to poll, you know, the average class that's here at the CI, you know, let's say it's a culinary class and you say, hey, you know, what do you guys want to do? You know, raise your hands if you want to open a restaurant uh, in your future, if that's your plan. You know, used to be, I would say, a decade ago, pretty much everyone would put their hand up. Uh, now, I would say less than half the class will put their hand up. They want to do all sorts of stuff. They want to write about food. They want to blog about food. They want to photograph food. They want to be on a film set designing food, shaping food. Uh, they want to cook food. They want to open a food company. They want to start a sports nutrition bar company. They want to re- they want to work on a cruise ship. I mean, it's just there's so many different options that are available these days, and and they're all viable options if if you've got a background in food. So. So yeah, it's it's definitely changed. Um, it's changed what students come here for. Not everybody wants to work in a kitchen that comes here. Many of them just want to be a food and beverage manager. Don't really want to work in a kitchen. Um, that's fine, um, but you still have to know what you're doing in the back of house. It seems to be an incredibly exciting time to be in the food industry. I went to the fancy food show not uh, just a couple of weeks ago in San Francisco and walked onto that convention floor and saw just an amazing amount of innovation. And it honestly made me excited. I feel a little patriotic a little bit. Like this is America's certainly back in the game in terms of uh, if you go back to... um, beer creation and the way that the craft brewing, you know, a generation ago, we were the world's laughingstock when it came to beer. And then all these craft brews came along, not only re-inspiring America's interest in beer, but also like helping their local economies, you know, Chico and Portland and Boston, like would all have their own beers. I think I see that in the food industry as well, this like tremendous uh, upsurge from small companies and even to larger companies where people are being really thoughtful and innovative about foods. It's a ton of innovation, yeah. ton of innovation. And it's, you're absolutely right. You go to those food shows, you get totally inspired. You start wondering about what you could possibly start. <laughs> absolutely. I'm wondering if any of your students think, you know, if they're, I'm sure they're, being a younger generation, interested in ideas like sustainability and food equity, um, food deserts. I wonder if any of them start out with the idea like, hey, I might be able to make a bigger impact if I go towards a bigger company, like make a smaller change at a bigger company like like Hormel. You've had graduates go to Hormel just to have that impact on the a larger scale. Are they do they think about that early on or is that something they come to later or uh, we're talking about exactly what you mentioned and that is that hey, maybe doing an externship at a large company uh, and learning about and assisting with some of today's challenges and opportunities is just as viable as going and spending 15 weeks learning in a kitchen somewhere. So I, I definitely see that on the event horizon as something that the CIA will pr- 
probably end up doing. Uh, it just it makes a whole lot of sense for a whole bunch of reasons. Could you talk a little bit about um, mentorship and the importance of it within the food community and the in the chef community? I, we have this idea from watching these TV shows that a great chef has to be just terrible to people that make to throws tantrums all the time and and is really hard on people underneath them. And I'm thinking that 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 might not always be true. That's maybe that's just a TV story we hear. In my career, which now spans some 35 years, uh, I've spent the majority of my time mentoring other people, helping other people cook better. And that was, you know, right back to when you're starting cooking, you're working next to somebody, you're helping each other out. You're always helping each other out to make sure you're ready for service, make sure things are done correctly or better than they were yesterday. That's been my experience for 35 years. For some reason, which I can't explain, uh, people enjoy watching shows where other people fail rather than succeed. Uh, And they like to watch or they enjoy watching people fall like dominoes in a kitchen and one person wins, so to speak. This is the opposite to the way real kitchens work. So um, the food service hospitality business is all about mentoring and bringing people along and uh, achieving new heights. And it's, it's, <laughs> that's, that's the reality of the industry, and it's not necessarily portrayed that way um, in the media or on TV. Yeah. In thinking about the, the food, beverage, hospitality business, it does seem like it's one of those places in America still where you can work your way up. You can start at a very low level, you know, and it's a, it's a path towards a good income eventually, but there's still that sort of pull yourself up by the bootstraps thing. Is that, is that a correct impression? Absolutely, 100%. The latter can be shortened somewhat by going to culinary school. Let's put it that way. CIA, for example, we're moving more and more of our programs toward a degree uh, and, uh, and taking the student education to the sort of next level. Um, with the idea that when you enter the industry, that's going to give you uh, a leg up and that's going to make uh, the sort of process up the ladder to wherever that final rung is, and, and it's different for everyone, uh, it'll make that path perhaps a little bit easier for people if they take the time to invest in a solid education. Socioeconomically, uh, you have people who start out as a dishwasher like me and kind of work their way up through the different levels. Depending on how far you want to go, it can be a long ladder. Uh, and it can take a lot of time, just as long as it could take to uh, be a lawyer or a doctor or a dentist. You know, this is a long time. It's like 10 years, you know, before you're running a kitchen. Um, it can take a while. But there's there's a space for everyone, I think, in all the different rungs in the ladder. For those who do aspire for more, the sky's the limit, really. You can go as far as you want. You want to be on TV, you can be on TV. You want to own... 20 restaurants and make millions of dollars, you can do that. You want to travel with food tourism, you can do that. You can really make what you want of it. It's, it's, it's pretty interesting in that respect that you can, it's portable, you can take it anywhere, and you can go as far as you want. Yeah, in hearing the stories of master chefs and other chefs' backgrounds, you know, it always has to do with, you know, then I went to France for two years, and then I worked in South Africa, and then I worked on a cruise ship, and then sure. I was at a resort. I mean, it's a, the Navy always used to try to get recruits by saying, you, you're, you'll see the world. But it seems like the, becoming a great chef almost promises the same thing. You end up in this strata of people where you, you know of an opening somewhere and you move and you move and you move and you move up. It's interesting that you say that. There's, um, 
the culinary world is fairly stratified and you move horizontally within it. Um, so, for example, if you are working in a Michelin-starred restaurant, um, you tend to get um, passed around or traded or given opportunities within Michelin-starred restaurants because those chefs all know each other uh, and, and, um, and people move laterally and gain knowledge at the different places that they're at um, before they move to the next level. And, and it's not just in Michelin star levels, but in all the different levels, there are sort of lateral movements within um, sort of each strata uh, where people are gaining knowledge at that kind of level. So whether it be on a cruise ship or in a Michelin star restaurant or in a fast casual restaurant chain, yeah. All right, now I'm going to start to ask you the ridiculous, impossible to answer question. So you're looking at the food yeah. landscape, it's interconnected food system. Everyone's worried about sustainability and, and you know food equity and and so forth. Where do you see us going as a culture? Do you see? Are you hopeful about being able to provide good food for sort of exponential number of people every generation? Where do you see the big problems and the big hopes? I think the writing's on the wall, and it has been for a considerable amount of time, that our current food practices are unsustainable. Um, monoculture is unsustainable. Uh, just by and large, it's, it's not sustainable the way we're headed right now. And uh, the move towards uh, more plant-based diets, as we were talking earlier, uh, is sort of the, the leading edge of the movement to move in a direction where we're eating more sustainably and stewarding our planet more sustainably. And uh, <laughs> I don't see any way to, to avoid that. It's like, it's like moving to electric cars. <laughs> we're still digging stuff up and burning it to get around. I mean, it ain't gonna happen for that much longer. It's just not going to. I, I can't see a future where we're eating the way we do today. So, you know, in the same way with the fossil fuels, like we're either past the tipping point or we're on our way to making, making we're clearly on our way to making positive changes. Are we going to do, are we doing it fast enough? Is there agreement within the food world that we're going to move in positive directions or do you feel like we're behind the curve? No, it's still the value propositions. We still want to drive pickup trucks and eat big steaks. It's, uh, it's not, it's not moving anywhere quickly. But I think geographically, it's starting to change. There are certain parts of the world, certain parts of America, uh, that are starting to come on board and starting to make change, and it's positive change. And hopefully that will spread and that will grow. Um, and slowly, over decades, you know, things, things will change as we realize that it's, it's the only logical path for us. All right, I'm going to give you a chef challenge. You have 20 people. You need to cook a dinner for them for under $7 a person. Like, how would you, how would you do that? What would you do? I would build a plant-forward menu. Uh, I would look to grains, uh, uh, legumes, vegetables uh, for texture, for color, for flavor, for diversity. Uh, and I would use that as the basis of um, the dishes. And then I would probably use animal protein more of as a garnish, uh, if you would, as most of the world, by the way, does, um, rather than using that as the center of the plate. And uh, I would build the meal out that way. For whatever reason, we've stratified the menu. You know, you've got your... <laughs> 
on today's menu, uh, persisting, you've got your salad section, right? Soup and salad section. And you've got your uh, appetizer section. And then you've got your main course section, right? What we really need to do is get rid of those categories and say, here's the dish, right? It's a salad with some of the stuff that you really want on top. And in that way, sort of flip the model on its head and turn the, the dishes around instead of being in different categories. Just kind of build a menu that's more balanced, um, the way the sort of food system would be balanced if it was correctly balanced. Yeah. There's this outer edge. You go to Silicon Valley, and there's a lot of startups that are really pushing this outer edge of food. So anything at the outer edge of the food innovation that you find mm-hmm. interesting mm-hmm. or worth talking about? Yeah. I think that um, out of all that innovation, you know, a lot of it, let's, let's pick a number, let's say 80% of it, is never going to stick. But there's some ideas, some little gems, right, that will come across that really, really make a lot of sense, right? So a good example would be, uh, you know, farming horizontally doesn't really make a lot of sense if you could farm vertically, right? So um, some of the systems you can get now, the, the aeroponics systems, uh, where you have vertical cassettes that you put, uh, let's say, lettuce plugs in, uh, and they'll go in racks, and those racks are loaded vertically. So you're now growing food in a vertical column eight feet high in this, you know, the space of a container truck, right? Would normally take an acre of land to do. Um, the food density you can get out of that as compared to the one acre, it just makes so much more sense, right? And you can bring that food to places that don't necessarily have the land to grow the food. So things like that, ideas like that, that's a really good idea. You know, uh, to me, that makes a ton of sense. Are we going to see that in the future? I sure hope so. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us here today. You're very welcome. Thank you for listening to this conversation with Adam Busby. I'm Ethan Waters, and I hope you'll join us again on our food journey. For more information on Hormel Foods and our engagement with our customers and partners, please visit hormelfoods.com.